Hello and welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. I'm Eric, Discipleship Pastor at New Life Lutheran Church in Sterling, Illinois. Today on the podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. We're doing a question and answer episode where we have received questions from one of our congregation members and myself, Pastor Ben and Tim, discuss those questions. We want to do these periodically throughout the year, so if you have any questions that you would like us to answer, you can email me. We'll sift through them and kind of consolidate them, and then we'll discuss them every couple months. So you can email your questions at eric.anderson at nllutheran.com. That's E-R-I-K dot Anderson at nllutheran.com. Thanks so much for listening in today. Let's get growing. We're back, and we have a special episode today. Today is our first question and answer podcast episode. We're going to do these periodically. We've got three questions to ask today, but we got these questions from one of our leadership team, which is kind of our board. For those of you not familiar with uh, New Life and how we kind of operate, we have a leadership team that's congregational, and uh, they're all lay people. And this is uh, a couple of questions that we got from one of our leadership team members The first question that we have today is, is the Bible really true? That's actually a question I get quite often in my middle school youth and my high school youth. But high school youth, not so much. It's definitely more in middle school. And it's because they can't really fathom uh, things that happened 2,000 years ago and how that could possibly still be relevant today. Uh, What I always tell them was, is why do you think the Bible has lasted so long? Why do you think it's still prevalent? So if it if it's lasted this long and it's still prevalent, then obviously at least some of the things in the Bible must be true. Yeah, that was one thing that I thought of when I got these questions first, and it's the exact same thing, is that there is no other no other piece of literature or art that is like the Bible. It is a project that is written by possibly hundreds of people in various times in various places over like 6,000 years. And there's nothing, there is no other project that big in any other culture, in any other religion. And I think just the number of voices that went into that and the consistency that we see in the Bible from beginning to end, how could it not be true if that many people over that much time all took part and unified it. That's beyond human um, ingenuity. It's it's truly must be something more than that. There's a, a myriad of, of reasons that we know the Bible is true. And if I don't think this is the podcast for it, but you could really go into the depth of manuscripts and all these things to to verify that the Bible is the same today as it was when it was originally penned by those who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it. And uh, you can go into all that, but really when people ask that question, they're not looking for that. They're not really looking for you to go into big intellectual, you know, dive with them. And and if you do, honestly, they'll probably just stop caring, get distracted, pull out their phones. Because people don't really want to know about the depth of manuscripts, the amount in the New Testament and, and the process in the Old Testament to make sure it was perfect and that they destroyed, even if there was a, a very small error, that they would burn it and destroy it and start over until it was perfect. And they transcribed it letter per letter um, from paper to paper. And those things do show us that there's value to the Bible. It is what it was and always has been, which of course is beautiful. But the the reality is people are asking, what can you take beyond all that intellectual assent to show me that the Bible is true? And so I always go back to the people. 
the people of the Bible. And I always take them to the disciples. What's so amazing about these guys is that they experienced life with Jesus. They walked with him day by day by day by day. And after three years of seeing him eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, do all the actions of a daily life, is they came to this crazy notion that he was perfect, which of course is something that that none of us would ever come to the conclusion by being around any one of us and anyone in your life for more than, you know, 10, 15 minutes. But they came up with this notion that he was perfect and they thought he was the Messiah. And then he died. And in that moment, everyone had given up because the person they thought was the Messiah was, was dead. But then something changed. And of course, as Christians, we celebrate that on Easter and he rose from the dead and he appeared to them. And it's that moment that gives the Bible validity. It's that moment that gives the Bible validity because the Old Testament is all about Christ who's coming and the New Testament the gospel is all about Christ's life, but the rest of the New Testament is all about the fact and it even exists because Jesus rose from the dead. And so when they experienced that, it changed their lives. It radically tra- transformed their lives. And they decided to pen these words down. Without Christ's resurrection, there was no New Testament because it was completely unnecessary. So these guys paid large sums of money because transcribing the Bible in those days was incredibly expensive. So they're spending and raising money to gain all this money to write the Bible, to write down the stories that they experienced. And not only that, and that's the reason we have the Bible, is they all went to their death, except for John. John was the only one who died of old age. And there is no way that 11 men, and then adding Paul into the mix, so 12 men go and are willing to go to their death for a lie. There was nothing to gain. Physically, there was nothing to gain. They spent their life savings and spent their life telling the story of Christ. And if someone wants to know, why do I think the Bible is real? I go back to the people. The people who are willing to do anything and everything to write these words down. And then if you take it a step further past that generation, you have the early Christians who Nero comes in and tries to wipe out. So the Roman government just decides to declare war on Christianity. They're killing people, killing people, killing people. And people are storing, not the Bible at that time because it didn't exist in its totality, but they're storing manuscripts, letters from these disciples. They're facing death themselves and they're holding on to these scraps of paper, these letters from the disciples, these manuscripts, and they're storing them and going to their death to protect these pieces of paper, these pieces of history about a man named Jesus. And only now do we have the Bible in its collective beauty that we have it in. And so I think sometimes we just naturally can ask the question of, is this real or is this not real? Because we have the option to do that in this day of age. But in that day of age, that was not the question. That was not the question for these people because no one was willing to go to their death, including the disciples or the early Christians for a lie. None of us are, none of us are. And so these people collected the works which then became the Bible that your grandma gave you, your confirmation teacher gave you, your pastor gave you when you got into third grade, fourth grade. And that's why I know it's true. Not because of all these things, even though I trust in the manuscript evidence and historical evidence and all those things, but the people, the people who are willing to risk their lives to write it, willing to risk their lives to maintain it. And that's one of the primary reasons that I can 100% believe in Christ because of the disciples' response to a man who predicted his death and resurrection and pulled it off. And if someone does that, you just listen and do whatever they have to say. And that's exactly what the disciples did. And that's exactly what the early Christians did. When I was growing up, I was in the church and also out the church, out of the church. I did some leading when I was a student in our youth group, but I was also very much in the world and kind of lived in the, in these two worlds. And I rededicated my life to Jesus and to his Lordship as a senior. And I started studying to be in ministry. And it wasn't until I was studying for ministry and then also became a pastor that my heart truly grabbed hold of biblical truth 
and it really wasn't until I became a pastor that I stopped doubting the existence of God. And it was connected with, with my study of the biblical literature itself. And in my mind, I had been exploring all these different options. I've been exploring uh, all these different worldviews. I've been exploring all these different ways of looking at the world. And none of them made sense to me. And the picture that I had received from my Sunday school teachers and from my church growing up didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me either. And it wasn't until I started studying the scripture deeply and started reading it again and again and again that I really started to understand what the Bible was claiming, not only about Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God and is part of the Trinity, but also what it was making the what it was claiming about humans, that we are created things um, that are meant to love God and also uh, how we tend to dominate other human beings any chance that we get. Um, so the the very first sin in Genesis was for humans to be like God, to take from God what only he could do for ourselves, the, the, the choice of right and wrong. And then with Cain and Abel, it was the same thing. Going into the Tower of Babel, it was the same thing. It all had to do with the human inclination towards serving, serving ourselves and also dominating others for our own benefit. And all through scripture, it makes that case that there are, there are fallen creatures, both humans and angels, that are trying to dominate others and trying to control others for, their, for themselves. And the way that we defeat that evil is, is by sacrifice, is by not buying into the lie of domination, but by loving and serving. That's how Jesus was victorious over sin, was by being killed for sin, um, and by, by being killed by the very powers he was he was going to overthrow uh, but to me there's just an inner consistency of reality i can look at the scriptures and look at the stories that are told in the scriptures and i can say that is true to how people still are that these things that were these stories that were written and penned six thousand years ago are still true to how humans operate today um, and i think that's truly amazing that genesis 3 the fall, the story of the fall is just as true and is it is relevant for us today because it is it is truthful about the human condition. Um, and that's like really when I bought in and stopped having those doubts when I was like, there is absolutely no question. There's no way that it can't be true. I think what, you know, what we started with this idea of the Bible year after year after year is, is the bestseller. It's, it's unbelievable. It, it's never dissipated, never gone away. You'd think at some point in time people would have enough Bibles in their possession. But the reality is the Bible continues to be a bestseller year after year after year. And there's a reason. And Eric hit on it is because there's truth there. There's eternal truth there. And when the world experiences their new truth, every year there's a new truth, uh, they feel the emptiness of it. But you can see all throughout Scripture that there's actually eternal truth that was set in stone before time. And life is not this subjective truth that we make up or feel or experience day after day. There's there's real, eternal, concrete truth that, that God put into existence before time. And, and Eric's right. You see that all throughout Scripture, and you can see God playing out and humanity playing out. And, and we don't change that much. We just live in different contexts. And it it does speak to the eternal. I think that's why people keep buying it. It's because that's the reality. They know this world is a mess. That's what the Bible tells them as well. Your world is a mess. This is the truth. Bind this truth. And God wants to do something amazing with your life. And and he continues to do that. He continues to do that for people who, who embrace it. So 
you know, when it comes to your middle scores or high scores or whatever, who asked that question, I, I hope they just give it a chance. Uh, they give it a chance because it's powerful. It's absolutely powerful. And I think one of the other beauties of Christianity is that our faith was not based off of a book. Now you got to listen to that, those words. Okay. Don't get worked up. Our faith is not based off of a book. Many religions, the guy went away. He wrote a book. Then he came back and he taught people the book. That's not how the Bible was. And we need to hold on to that truth as Christians. That's not how the Bible was. Jesus lived a life. He transformed the world. In fact, Paul says, if he did not rise from the dead, our faith is void. What Paul does not say is, if this book is not true, our faith is void. It's our faith is built on a pinnacle moment that the entire Old Testament points to, the disciples experienced and saw, and that a faith came from a moment, and then a book was written about that moment because it was worth writing about. And so when people ask you that question, once again, it just goes back to, I think there's so much, there's so much there to prove that the Bible is true, but our faith is based not on a book, it's based on a moment. And this book is amazing because it tells about that moment. And it's true because you see the humanity in it, you see the truth in it, and you go into all the historical documents and it points to the reality that what the disciples wrote is what you have in your hand, transcribed in your language for you to understand this story, this moment, a faith started the disciples re-believed, re-engaged, the Holy Spirit came, and now there's a church every five blocks in America and all throughout the world because of a moment that a book captured the beautiful essence of what Christ did while he walked the earth. The next question piggybacks off the first one, and you kind of hinted at it, and so we can kind of start there, I think, Ben. But the next question that we have is, how do I defend or how do I articulate what I believe? And you kind of hinted at it. So can you talk a little bit more about putting our faith in Christ and using the Christ event as a way to explain our belief and articulate our belief? I think one of the beautiful things of being a church connected to all of church history, as the Lutheran church is, and, and there's other churches obviously too, but being in a Lutheran context, it's easy to just point in that direction because we know it the best. But every every week we are professing a creed, which is a belief system. It's the core beliefs of what we own. And the reason we do that every every week is because we want our people to have a tool in their back pocket to say, this is what I believe. We literally say in the creeds, either we start with, I believe in the Apostles' Creed, or, or we believe collectively when we recite the Nicene Creed, and it goes through a statement of beliefs of the cores of what we believe. And so if someone asked you, hey, what what is a Christian? You literally could just recite to them the Apostles' Creed. And if you come to New Life consistently, you know it, whether you know it or not. If I took the words away, you'd still be able to say it. And that's the, the crux of your faith. With that being said, that would give them the theology and the core of what defines Christianity— but for you to really explain why you are a Christian goes back to your story, that the faith was started on a story, right? The story of Christ, but the faith is continued through people's stories throughout the centuries. So Martin Luther had a story and God changed his life. His story impacted the next person. And somewhere along your story, you were impacted by someone's story as well. And now you have your own. And the beauty of a story and your story, your personal story, is that it's impossible to refute. If someone comes to you and says, why are you a Christian? You say, well, this is my story. This is how God impacted my life. This is how I saw it. What they can't say and what they won't say is that didn't happen. Like people don't do that with people's stories because it's, it's your story. Now, if you went into this long thing about manuscripts and this and that, uh, 
one, they would stop paying attention. But two, they will try to refute that. They would say, well, how about the creation story? How do you explain that? Or how about this section in Leviticus when they were killing people off for, you know, this or that? Like, how do you explain that with a loving God? But if you tell your story and say, hey, here's my story. I was caught up in this addiction. Christ changed my life. My marriage was a wreck. You know, Christ transformed my life. Or maybe it's not as extreme as that, but it's just, hey, this is my experience with God. And that story has power. And that story cannot be refuted by people. They might question it, but they what they can't say is that's not true because it is your story to share with the world. And God gives you that unique story. And all throughout time, we see how stories have impacted the world. And so if someone were to ask me that question, I would give them the cores of the faith, but I would really just go to, here's my story. I was caught up in this. I didn't believe in this moment. Now I believe these were my experiences and God showed himself and revealed himself to me. I'm so glad that happened. And I hope it can happen for you too. So there's um, this British author named Julian Barnes, who is a famous secularist, and he grew up in a completely unchurched environment. And so he'll tell you that the only time he's ever been in a church is for weddings and funerals. He did not grow up in a religious family. He has zero church formation. So he's kind of the poster child, I guess, of the secular West. He has almost zero interaction with the church, almost zero interaction with religious texts almost zero interaction with a faith community. So he's kind of the picture of what, we, what we're seeing in the West uh, and, and in more and more in the United States of young people and families that have not been in a church except maybe Christmas and Easter a few times. They have not prayed except maybe at Thanksgiving when their grandma prays. They have not, they have not experienced these things. And Julian Barnes, when he talks about this in his memoir, he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And Julian Barnes, in his life, he knows that he is longing for and is like wanting something more. When Steve Jobs was coming towards the end of his life and cancer was riddling his body, his, I can't remember what his his biographer's name is, um, but he outlines this in his, in Steve Jobs' biography. Um, Steve Jobs even said, I'm about 50-50 on God. And this is like, the most famous secular businessman ever, right? I mean, he's like the poster child of the Bay Area futurist. You know, he doesn't, he should be a complete atheist. And he says, I'm about 50-50 on God. And he talks about wanting something more, wanting immortality, wanting his consciousness to exist past his body's death. And so I think there's a myth that our world is anti-religion or anti-faith. I don't think most people are like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens who are like angrily ranting about how the church is evil and all these things, or even like Bart Ehrman, who's a biblical uh, scholar, but is very anti-church and anti-faith. And he he's a he's an atheist who does not believe in, in, a, in a God. And I But I think that more often than not, the people that we talk to are more like Julian Barnes or Steve Jobs, where they want it to be true even if they don't believe it. So I think that changes how we talk about defending our faith and kind of the apologetics is because we're not dealing with people who are anti-God or anti-church. They just don't believe in that in that story, but they want it to be true. They want, Or they want something to be true beyond themselves. And so I really think that defending our faith has more to do, and I, and I like how you brought up stories, my your personal story, because what what I think we need to do is just tell God's story and tell our story within God's story and show people how it, how it connects. All three of us here have had a personal 
relationship with Jesus. We've all experienced him in ways. We've experienced him in our spirits. We've experienced him in our lives and we're changed because of what he did for us. And so if we just share that with people, that changes how we approach that. Because we don't have to angrily defend our faith. I think we just have to show people that there's a better life, that there is a good life that they can have too. If they know Jesus, if they put themselves in a community of faith that they can love and that loves them, um, that's the better life that people want. And that's the fulfillment that people want. I've learned fairly recently, I think it's just really dawned on me, the power of asking questions. If we looked at this as a step-by-step process and it's nothing is that systematic and, and people aren't that systematic, but the reality is if it was, or if I had to make it into a system, I, I would say you lead with your story and then you ask really good questions, which goes to what Eric is talking about, right? People are really curious. And so asking the question, have you experienced anything that you would say would be a God, a God thing and spark that conversation. And ultimately the reality is we all have questions and there's a few questions we all have to ask ourselves. And we all have to live with because as a humanity, we need to know a couple things. And and the major question that we all have to ask is, is there a point to all this? And if there's a point, if there's a point, then there has to be somebody who designed our world to make it function with a purpose. And I think that takes us to the next ultimate question, which everyone has to answer and no one can because it points in a direction that requires something to exist. At some point in time, as you work your way back, you have to realize that that Nothing could not create everything. Nothing ever could. So something has to exist. A non-created entity has to exist. And the only definitive thing that we can say is it has to be, at the very least, a godlike deity, some sort of designer. And it requires an unbelievable intellect to even impose and lead life in that direction. So I think that's a question I would ask anyone, but I wouldn't start off with it because then that makes them defensive. It makes you defensive. And I love how you said defending your faith, like, you alluded to it is not even a good posture because it puts you, it puts your defenses up. You're, you're not defending yourself. You're sharing life with somebody. You're having a real conversation. But once I took someone to that level, I would just out of curiosity say, how did the world begin? How did everything come from nothing? And in the end, everyone's going to default to the reality of, I don't know, or they'll come to the reality of something must've happened. And then you just simply go with, isn't it worth exploring what that thing was? Isn't it worth looking into some religions? And I think as a Christian, now that's easy to say as a Christian, but I would say the religion that answers that question, is there something? Yes. Is there a purpose? Yes. What religion can best answer those questions and guide us towards the ultimate outcome? It's Christianity. And uh, if I can get someone just to express the idea that there might be a God, get them that far, go from agnostic or uh, atheist to agnostic, that if they have any, any desire whatsoever, they're going to keep working down that path. Hopefully they start studying religions and in the end, that search, that pursuit of truth will lead them to the ultimate source of truth, which is Christ. I think the funniest, um, or not the funniest, but craziest things is uh, what religions are growing the quickest. And it's the nuns, right? And it's not the nuns as in the Catholic nuns. No, that's not what I mean by nuns. I mean the agnostics, the people that believe that there is a God but they don't allow that God or they don't think that that God can actually influence their lives. And so when we look at just how and why that is, we know that, uh, that there is a desire to want to have immortality or like Steve Jobs to want to have your conscience go on just beyond this earth. And so when you, when you really think about it and when you really 
um, ask those questions, it becomes, well, okay, there obviously has to be some sort of intelligent design. There obviously has to, this, this can't just have come from nothing. And I, one of the things that I love to do and one of the things I love to watch is astronomy. Um, just things about the planets in our universe and how it's ever expanding and how a lot of my favorite scientists are actually going leaning more towards that okay yeah there could be a god because I just don't see how all of this and you know you think about how our telescopes are crazy now and how they can see light years away from our earth and so the scientists uh, believe that this is that there's no way that this is just all out of nothing and you know when you're talking to someone and you know when you're trying to defend your faith and you know there have been times where people have come to me and they know that I am a Christian and I stand firm in my beliefs and they'll just straight on attack me um and so one of the places that I always love to start is just like Ben said with my own personal story about how God came into my life and how he has altered my life and how my ways were leading towards the path of destruction and God has just completely transformed my life. That's one thing that they can't, they can't take away from me. Like they can never, you know, obviously I'm not super into reading. Matter of fact, I hate reading. And so, um, you know, they can, they can say fancy things, but, uh, and they can say creative things to make me try and doubt, but there's nothing that can take away how God has changed my life. Do you guys know Hebrews 11.1? 1? Faith is mm-hmm. the evidence of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. So faith is the evidence of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so even in our definition of faith in the scriptures, what is what is part of that faith? Having evidence and having conviction. So I, I think it's kind of a misnomer when we as Christians... And I like that you brought up sciences, Tim, because I think it's kind of a misnomer for when we talk about, well, we just either take everything by faith. And I use air quotes when I said by faith, because we think that that means having no evidence and therefore everything has to be based on some belief that is separate from based on evidence. And so Paul mentions in one of his letters that the risen Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. So there were hundreds of people who saw the risen Jesus, experienced him, all started sharing their stories and telling their stories to each other. They all started worshiping this Jesus as God. And then that movement spread throughout the whole world. And so we're going to kind of circle back. I just want to button it up, Ben, with what you brought up way back at the beginning, is that there is no way that that many people would go to death for something that was a lie. These, these people did not get rich off of their experience. They did, not get, they did not get rich off of their stories, off of their writings. They were brutally killed because of what they believed. And there's just no reason, there's just no reason to think that somebody would do that for a lie. People get rich off it now, and they're, they're basing that on a lie. But, um, and in fact, N.T. Wright wrote a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, and it's like 800 pages. So, Tim, I think that you would love it that just outlines this very thing about the, the phenomenon of Jesus Christ being risen from the dead and all the eyewitnesses and then all the stories and the gospel accounts and then all the letters that we're writing. And N.T. Wright just lays out the evidence and just says, based on simply the 
the facts that we know, there's just absolutely no way that this could be chance or this could be a lie. And so I think that we can have confidence in what we believe. Jesus is real. He actually walked around first century Palestine and he actually did heal people and he actually was crucified and he actually was resurrected. And we have eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts, firsthand eyewitness accounts to show us that. The third question that we received is, how do we deal with hypocrisy in the church? I believe you have hypocrisy almost anywhere you go. I mean, it's not like we're completely perfect beings that just do everything we say we're going to do or we actually act exactly how we we want to act. It's just, it's just not possible sometimes. And, you know, there's a... There's a couple people that I know of that really don't like coming to church because, oh, well, I just don't like all the hypocrites there. And they think that, you know, the church is supposed to be a place of perfect people. And I'm like, absolutely not. Uh, I'm not perfect. Uh, Our pastors aren't perfect. Our congregation is not perfect. Um, And then I also like to tell them just to get, you know, throw in a little jab, but to say, you know, if you don't go to church because there's hypocrites there, that's just like saying, oh, well, I don't want to go to the doctor because there's sick people there. And that idea of someone coming to you and saying, I'm not going to go to church because there's hypocrites or why is there hypocrites in the church is first of all, built on a lie. And the lie that it's built on is when you become a Christian, you're instantaneously perfect. Or in other words, is you're instantaneously like Christ. And of course that's asinine. You know, that, that, so that question inherently is broken because the idea of being a hypocrite is on the veneer, you're pretending to be perfect, but if people really knew you, you were broken and sinful. I think anyone who's spending time in church, specifically ours, we literally start every service with a time to confess and forgive. And when I kind of freelance that, I always say, I know you screwed up. I know, I know I screwed up. I know we all screwed up. And this is why we're giving that to God. So we literally admit we literally admit we are not perfect. If someone asks that question, they, they are starting with the assumption that you have to be perfect to be a Christian or you're expected to be perfect to be as a Christian. And uh, it, it's just kind of a, a total misnomer. And so the reality is, yes, the church is filled with hypocrites. But the question beyond that is, what do we do? We keep going to church because being a disciple of Christ is being near Christ and becoming like Christ. That is the goal. It's not attainable but we get better. And so the goal of a, of a Christian is to become more and more like Christ each and every day. And the reality is to accomplish that goal, you have to be near Christ. And so we have certain avenues in church to accomplish that goal. So we step into the church setting in a consistent basis. We step into a life group or a Bible study or something of that. And we, we grow and we change. We take time to read the scripture, which we have now at our fingertips, which is a beautiful thing the first century church didn't have. We step into that. We have devotions. We listen to podcasts like this or something else you're listening to, and we become more and more like Christ. So the goal is transformation. We'll never be perfect, but we're working towards it. Now, here's the other thing. That person, that person asking that question or even thinking that question 
or having that thought about people in the church, it's it's a far more broken question than I even alluded to. It's not only the false notion that people should be perfect, but it's also the false notion that if they're feeling that tension, like God is not spurring them to do something about it. We join together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all moving in the same direction, hopefully. And that means that part of your responsibility is to care for your brother and sister. And that means that if you have a close friend who's disengaged from church and not following Christ's path, who's caught up in addiction, the answer is not to judge them and sit in your home and say they're, they're wrong and they're there. So the system is broken. No, the answer is to encourage them to keep going so they can get better. They can find their healing. They can find their transformation. And then you draw near to them. And, uh, that's the reality, right? If you sense hypocrisy on somebody, your job is not to sit back and as if that's going to fix the problem and I'm judging them from a distance, that's God calling you to go have a real conversation. Now you have to have a relationship with them. You can't just walk in and be like, I don't know you. I saw this and this is what I'm sensing. No, you, you lean in, you care for them, you love them and say, Hey, I'm concerned because it seems like you're going in this direction. And if you keep going that direction, it's going to cause damage. And that's what I'm, I'm here to help you with. Can I help you? Can I serve you? And that gives everyone else the freedom to do the same thing. So the reality is, of course, there's hypocrisy in the church, or at least, you know, the perceived notion of hypocrisy, because that's a false notion. But like Tim said, of course, the church should be full of broken people. In fact, if it's not, which would be an possibility, means that people don't really have a clue about themselves. We're all broken. We're all failing. We all desperately need Christ in our lives. And that's what we should be working towards. And we should be helping each other along the way, not sitting back and making statements about one another, about how flawed and broken we are, because duh, we all are. Yeah. So I would just want to agree with both of you guys. And I call it a uh, country club Christianity. When the church is treated like a country club, that's an unhealthy church. So you come in, you pay your dues, you get your vote, you enjoy your social time, and then you're out of there. And there's no actual any any change. It's just a social experience. Churches are supposed to be hospitals for sinners and not country clubs. And we as Lutherans have, have this built into our pastoral care, pastoral leadership, worship experience. And the the historic Christian worship witness would tell us that we always should start our worship service with confession and forgiveness. And so we do that. We are not right and we are not right with God. And so we just admit that right up front. Now people don't always buy into that. And there is hypocrisy in the church. There are people who act self-righteous and treat others poorly or think that they're better than others just because they're jerks. What I would ask that person, if someone came up to me and, and said, why is there so much hypocrisy in the church, I would just ask them, why is there so much hypocrisy in the world? Because like, we're all fronting about different things. I mean, that's all that social media is, is making myself look good for my peers. Every picture on Instagram is like perfect and filtered. And I mean, we literally call them filters. We filter out real life and we just leave this like perfect image of who we want to be. Or we follow others on Instagram or Twitter and we're like, oh, they're so great. I wish I were like them. I mean, we're all hypocrites and we all know that. And even non-believers are hypocrites and they feel like they're hypocrites. I mean, it doesn't, it's not just Christians that have a, a claim to making people feel guilty because everybody feels guilty about their lives. No one feels like their lives are going well. 
No one feels like their lives are perfect. We're all in the same boat. And so churches are hypocritical and people in churches are hypocritical when when they don't recognize that or they try to act like that's not the case for everybody, uh, which is part of why I like the Lutheran tradition is because we have no hesitancy to making people feel bad about themselves. <laughs> we have uh, we we do that quite often and we just are honest about it that, hey, you know, we all fall short. And even if you're a non-Christian, you know that you fall short. You can feel it. You can. We're all walking around with that guilt. But that still doesn't address the issue that there are people in our churches that are self-righteous and that there are people in our churches and leaders in our churches that abuse their position and abuse their power for their own gains. So I think that maybe the question that people are asking is not, why is there so much hypocrisy in the church? But it's looking for an answer of why are leaders abusing their power and why are people acting self-righteous and specifically why is that happening in the church it happens everywhere but why does it happen in the church i know for me it is always easier for me to see when someone else is doing wrong it is always easier for me to say oh my goodness you're totally walking in sin and you totally shouldn't be doing that and it's much harder for me to see my own sin and for me to realize my own sin um when I'm thinking in that nature. And so, uh, you know, there's, uh, in the Bible talk, Jesus says, it's, why are you worried about the splinter in someone else's eye when you have a log in your own eye? And, um, you know, I, I remember I used to always joke with uh, one of my buddies who would always come to church. Uh, he'd always roll up like 10 minutes late. It was consistently 10 minutes every single time. And I would always point that out to, you know, I was just messing around, but he quoted that scripture to me and I had nothing to say, you know, I was, because again, I could see and I can visualize, um, other people's sins and other people's shortcomings. And so it kind of gives you this false sense of, oh, I'm holier than thou, because you can't see your own sin when you're in that mentality. It's really, it's hard to see your own sin in general. That's something that you have to pray for. That's something you have to ask God, God, please reveal my sins and show me my shortcomings. Once you compare yourself to Jesus, that's when, and only when you'll start to, God will kind of reveal that sinful nature uh, of yourself. Sometimes it's hard. Other times it's easy. Um, but when it's easy, I feel like that's Satan trying to bring on shame. And um, so there's a balance in between there as well. Um, and so, yeah, you can't have that mindset of, well, I'm just going to look at other people and focus on their sins. To continue that thought, I think you're right that you, when we look at other people, we assume the worst of other people, but we want them to assume the best of us. And so... When we start with that posture, it's it's already a bad situation. So even if someone wrongs us, but they aren't trying to, or that they say something, but it's offensive to us, but they weren't trying to say that, we just assume the worst of them, right? They were trying to hurt me. They were trying to do this, uh, which is, of course, not what we want people to do for us. We want people to hear our words and then translate it into the best possible you know option available. Also, I think if you switch that lens, if you reverse that lens, instead of assuming or wanting everyone to assume the best of you and you're assuming the worst of everyone else is that you can also take it from the lens of, I'm going to assume the best of everyone else, but I'm going to really check my intentions and my words and how they're perceived. 
from the worst possible standpoint. And that kind of awakens you to that reality that oh, I said that I did that. And, and maybe that's why it did more damage instead of in your mind thinking that's not what I meant. You know, that's not how it should have been perceived. So that's on there. That's on them. And if you reverse that lens, which we all have that, you know, backwards, we assume the best of ourselves and we assume the worst of others. If we flip that, it actually puts us in a best, better posture. But there was a, a bigger question at play there that, that uh, Pastor Eric asked, which was, why is there abuse of power in the church? And the answer is there's abuse of power everywhere. And, and the reality is there's something built into our DNA. And it was built into the DNA of all of God's creation, apparently, that we want to take on the role of God. And every time we take on the role of God, it ends up in a big mess. Adam and Eve, what do they want? I want to be like God. I want to have that wisdom. I want to take on the role of God. So we're dealing with sin and death because of them. But we do this all the time, right? This is the constant battle. I can move up in my business and then I become a mini God over my minions. I move up higher then I become the God of that space. Abusive spouses are this, right? I'm the God of my wife or maybe in the inverse, it would be I'm the God of my husband. I'm the God of my kids, right? That's an abusive mindset. I think in general, that's just really natural for us as humanity to say, I am the God of this. I'm the God of my money. I'm the God of this. I'm the God of that. Uh, And ultimately what you're saying is I'm above everything that's subservient, subservient to me. And as soon as you do that with staff, as soon as you do that with a spouse, as soon as you do it with kids, as soon as you do it with friends, whatever role, wherever you think you are more elite and you put yourself in that God role, you are not equipped for that role. We were never meant for that role. No one was meant for that role except for God and God alone. And so when we do that, we naturally will do damage. And so you talk about in the church, we see this, sometimes people rise and people love them. And that's why they rose to their positions. And they get this, I think this false notion, if unchecked, I have become the God of this mega church, this business, this or that. And then we're not equipped to it. We never will be equipped for that role and we do damage. And so watching that, understanding that, understand the spirituality behind that and just completely every day unshackling that, that notion that, that we're taking on some sort of, at the very least, a minor role of God. Uh, we need to un, unhitch that reality. And there's one God, God alone. And we are simply a servant in his vineyard doing what he wants us to do. And that makes us look at people very, very differently, that we are caretakers of God's children. 